Welcome to Our Trumpet Life, a podcast focused on teaching, learning, and sharing all things trumpet. Thanks for joining us again. And today we're going to be talking about range. So I wanted to start this episode off just asking the question, how would you define range? We'll go around and just talk about that a little bit before we really dig into it. David, would you like to start us off? Sure. Uh, I, I like to keep my, my definition of range very simple. I guess for me, usable range is the lowest note on the trumpet to the highest note I can use, I can play on the instrument with confidence and consistency. You know, you can, and then you can build range and play above that. Trumpet's kind of one of the cool instruments that you don't necessarily have a ceiling where some other instruments may have, you know, a, a limit to how, how high you can go. It's really based on, you know, what you can do physically. So, yeah, the lowest and highest note that you can play on the instrument. How about you, Chris? Yeah, my definition of range is a little bit complicated, and I'll do my best to explain it in a very clear manner, but it's being able to play a note in full resonance. And that's the first part. And the second part is being able to play those notes in transition effortlessly. So from the bottom of your notes, that the best possible sounding note you can make in the lowest part of your range, that's the bottom of your range, as well as the complete opposite where you go to the highest part of your range where you sound the most resonant in pitch or in tone that you can possibly play. And then the second part is being able to transition and connect those ranges. That's my definition of range. So that's similar. You both, both you and David have kind of a similar approach in that you're talking about playable, playable range. Like what is in your wheelhouse, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Exactly. How about you, Derek? I, I mean, I definitely fall in along similar lines as Chris, especially Chris, because we've developed some of this thinking together, but definitely similar with David too. And I've spoken with all of you guys about this. I would start off by saying I that range to me is a subset of connection. So I I take my fundament my definition of fundamentals from Craig Morris's definition, which there's a great clinic on YouTube from an NTC of, I don't know five years ago or something like that. And I put range under connection. Within that, to me, you know, Chris and David talked about usable range. That's just, to me, a separate thing. Range is kind of the concept, like the ideal. And I define that as the ability to play any note in any range at any dynamic and being able to connect those. So being able to play from your lowest note with a great sound, any dynamic, to playing your highest note with great sound, any dynamic, and it's all connected. So that's your one range. And as we all know, it's not always one range. And I think that's part of the goal is is getting those ranges, those distinct registers to be one range. And that's part of what we're fighting for. And then usable range is obviously what I consider what you can actually do. It's not the perception. It's not what you what the goal is. It's what you actually can do consistently out of that definition so yeah i like this this term usable range because i think 
composers out there using the music notation software will go and see that you know the trumpet's range the given range for a trumpet is generally you have your low f sharp below the staff to like a high d above the staff is before it starts getting into the red notes on that notation software and of course you know that might be a good basis for the trumpet's range but it's going to depend on the person because everyone's going to have a different series of notes in their usable range the way I like to break down range for myself, though, is isn't really into three categories, which is your low range or your low register, your medium register, and then your upper register. I like to try to steer away from high register just because of the connotations that you can bring to that with like the difficulty of high notes or whatever. So I like to use upper register for that. But yeah, I mean, my my basic definition of range kind of comes down to that. You know, the three different registers of range, and it's just a series of notes within each of those registers that are available to any said player or usable range to any said player and what their abilities are. Ben, I think that's interesting that you say that you don't use the term high register. You use the term upper register instead of high register to avoid the connotations of the term high. Yeah. And for me, where it's, it's, you know, I'm, it's easier for me to play high than it is to play low. And I have negative connotations about the term low register. <laughs> but that's also just that idea is why I try to turn all of this into one range. You know, I don't, I don't break it down even into, into low, medium, upper, or high at all. I think it's this is all one range and I need it to all be the same. And that's what helps me. It's the same thing. I'm doing it for the exact same reason that you're doing it, but uh, I just turn it into one. Yeah, I I completely understand that concept. And I, I like that from a philosophical philosophical. <laughs> Let's stick with that. I'll keep that one in. <laughs> Falafel. From, from, <laughs> from the philosophy of, you know, understanding range on the instrument and how it how it applies to you. The reason why I like to break it down though is really in a targeted practice. Like if I'm going to target a portion of my range that is in the lower register, you know, I could use whatever term, then I might spend a you know, certain amount of time that's targeted on that. And I, I get what you're saying though, is that, you know, we're not trying to just develop one aspect of range. It's really it as a whole. And I think that maybe that's just a different way that I approach it than other people. And that's fine. Like this is going to be interesting today in this discussion in general, because of how different people approach this topic. So, and that, that to me is why this is going to be so valuable to not just us, you know, talking as friends and peers, but to our listeners, just to hear these differing opinions or approaches. Yeah, you and I have very similar concepts. We do approach it from a different side of the coin because we do different things. We play in different styles. And as a lead player, I have to deal with range. All I hear and get asked about range all the time. And it's when people ask me about range, they're not talking about how do we develop our low register or our middle register. How do we connect those two? They're talking about how can I play higher? And that's another reason why I try to eliminate that whole idea. If you're going to ask me about range, 
what we're probably going to talk about is connecting below the staff to just above the staff. And uh, we're not going to do high notes because that's not the actual, that might, you might think that's your goal, but it's not actually going to get you where you're wanting to go. Uh, and that's why, you know, we'll, and we'll get to this, but the low register in, in the world I'm in is neglected so much. That's part of the reason why my range exercises, I require myself to, if I'm not starting low, I have to eventually go there all in the same in the same exercise. I have to connect my upper to my lower all the time, period. And that means I'm going to have to sacrifice some notes at the top, but that's okay. Because that means that at least the notes at my top I can use. I got a question. So have you guys ever heard of the more you develop your low range, the better you develop your higher range? I heard, I mean, I've heard that before, but it wasn't low range it was actually pedal tones yeah like pedal tones yes that's that's what i'm getting at so you develop your pedal tones in order to play your double c's your upper double c's have you guys heard of that before i i mean yeah i definitely have i haven't really seen that double c yet i've i can play three octaves or three pedal three octaves in the pedal tones but I I don't have that double C yet but I have heard that many a times. Yeah, you know, I'm just curious, do you guys think that is true? Do you do you believe in that process? Do you find much merit in that? Well, I'll just jump in and say as far as that concept is concerned, the the one exercise that I go back to that I've actually done that's similar would be stamp. And I think we probably all have experienced around with those stamp exercises that reach into the lower register. But honestly, I think that kind of going back to what Derek was talking about is all about connecting your range and connecting those pedal tones to your medium range or whatever you want to call that, your money range and into the upper register. And so to me, that really is connectivity related. And the pedal tones, whereas I don't necessarily believe it's a an equation, you can play a low double or not double C, but you know a low pedal tone C doesn't necessarily equal double C. But I do think that the practice of that, especially in the stamp method, has helped my upper register. I, I'd love to hear what Derek says on this, honestly. Uh, well, it looks like Chris has something to say about that. Do you want to say it or do you? Yeah. What specifically, and this is open up to anybody, what specifically about practicing low range or connecting your regular range, your cash register to your low range allows you to play upper notes better? Uh, movement. Trying to avoid movement. Because to me, that was what stamp was. It was like you're thinking up when you're going down, thinking down when you're going up. You're you're essentially trying to avoid all of this extra overcompensation in embouchure movement and making things as much related to that middle G as possible. Ah, and so for yes. me, it all goes back to that. Like you're not trying to overcompensate for those pedal tones. You're trying to play it as as equal or not equal, but as... Uh, even if you want yeah as even as possible to your money notes yes so to eliminate any unnecessary movements that may inhibit bad posture or uh, form yeah form yeah, yeah. In, in that regard 
Uh, is that kind of what you were thinking, Derek, David? Well, actually, it, it gets confusing, and I never bought into it because the way it was described to me was the movement, the shape that you make with your embouchure in the pedal in the pedal tones is the same shape that you make with your embouchure in the upper register, and it's almost like a puckering thing. And I never, I ne- I never personally bought into that. I've heard that too, as well. Air is all uh, different, though. I've also heard that, yeah, the air is different. I mean, in my, I haven't had that experience where it's the same for me. And, you know, a disclaimer, I'm not the guy that can just play double C's all the time. But I don't, in my experience, they're not, they don't equate. Now, I guess if I had to say if there were was a connection, it would be the amount of like you have to be pretty relaxed to play a pedal c sort of you can't be all the way relaxed because then you're not actually going to slot that note because a lot of us have probably experienced where it's actually slots at like a low b or b flat and you have to find a way to get it to raise the pitch so it's not completely relaxed but it is a form of relaxed and i think that one of the issues a lot of people have when trying to I don't want to say when trying to play double C, but just trying to play in the extreme upper registers that they are closing down too much and the air's not getting out. But I agree that I don't think the air's the same because you're going to be putting out probably more air on a pedal C than you are on a double C. Ideally, I mean, ideally, a double C doesn't have required that much air volume. It requires a lot of air speed. And that's, that's where I think saying that those things are equivalent, that the pedal C and a double C are equivalent, I think that's where that picture falls apart. Because the physical process you need to create enough airspeed is not happening when you're playing a pedal C. But you're putting in so much air volume for a pedal C that if you try to combine those two, you're just setting yourself up for disaster. Everything's going to clamp down. So, yeah, I, I don't, I definitely don't think that's a, uh, I don't think that's a helpful picture to teach people. I agree. You know, to answer the question, Ben, or to go back to the original question, which is about stamp and these connecting exercises, I think that the, the, what stamp actually is, is exercises that practice that are meant to help you practice your usable range Mm -hmm. because you are yes you're playing pedal tones but playing those low notes is not the point of that exercise Mm -mm. right you know because they're they're not written that's not something you are going to deal with and you don't have to play a pedal c on your senior recital i mean David improvises with pedal notes all the time. I've heard him do it, (laughs) and it sounds great. That's true. (laughs) And and actually, to be fair, I have seen flugelhorn lit where you actually play pedal Cs. Sure. Yes, that's true. You do see those, but oftentimes you'll play that on a four-valve flugel, or unless you're Hokan Hardenberg, like, you know, there's, yes, that's, it's a thing, but it's not something the majority of us are going to have to do in a performance unless we voluntarily decide to play that piece. And hopefully you have good pedal tones if you do. But the goal, I think, of those exercises is to get you b- playing below 
the horn. Like the horn is no longer helping you play pedal tones. It's below the response point of the horn. And then you have to come back up and ascend, which means it's like what you said, Ben. You have, you cannot have very much extraneous movement if you're going to do that. Now, the nice thing about that is that as you ascend and come down, it allows you to play, hopefully, more... Well, it will help you play more efficiently, and hopefully it's more in air quotes, correctly, so you're not hurting yourself. And that's what I mean by correctly, I guess. But it practices your usable range. Instead, what most people do when they practice range is they play major arpeggios as high as they possibly can. And that's not really helping anything. You know, it doesn't matter if you can squeak out a double C, because you're not going to be playing it. If you can only squeak out a double C every now and then, hopefully you're not playing those. Because you're probably not hitting them that often, right? But if you are practicing playing something like stamp, I don't do stamp, but if you're doing something like it, and there's a lot of things like it where you're playing starting in the middle and you go up and you go down and you go back up and you're connecting everything and you're not moving and maybe you can only play to a high E. Well, guess what? You can probably play that high E almost whenever you want, right? And that's more helpful to us. And you're doing it likely without hurting yourself as much. It's just it's just so much better in the long run. So I'm I'm big proponent of things like stamp. Like I said, I don't use stamp. Uh, I try to build my own things, but that's why I I think of range as just a single setting. Yeah. The thing I was going to add was Chris. I never have used stamp with the intention of increasing my range. It was always about what I said, which was connectivity with, without all the extraneous movement. And I do believe that it helps build strength because of, you know, the corners that you have to use for pedal tones. But beyond that, like for me, it was always about, about the connectivity and the, the low extreme low to mid register. And depending on the extensions you do even to into the upper register or simply using it as a way to relax your aperture and help get back response. For sure. I mean, that's kind of how I've used stamp as well. So then I got a question for you then. What specific exercises have you used to develop high range specifically? I think this is going to be a really good question to go around and answer for each of us because I, I'm sure we all have very different approaches to this. Well, so to be clear, are you asking what exercise have we done to be able to just shift our highest possible note up? To improve our upper register, yes. To just be able to play higher. Create the ceiling. Let's go higher. I guess I'll start. Um, I mean, I've done, I would say, you know, my, the first thing I ever did was just the major arpeggio, right? The old classic, <laughs> the classic <laughs> that we've all done. And I think that it's a great exercise and very useful. And, you know, if you're thinking the right things, I think the next big thing I did was the Charles Cole flexibility book. Uh, and I used specifically the, the one that has all three volumes in it. It's yes. like the collected version. And I would run a volume a day. That was all. I would just run one volume a day. And I think it goes up to A or something. And 
But even by then, I was really focusing on not... I mean, I wasn't focusing on getting the high range even then. Then Maggio. I did a lot of Maggio. But again, I mean, it's been so long since I've been focused on just getting... Just going higher. I try to do something where it's all connection-based, like we've been talking, something nice and focusing on usable range. And then maybe at the end, I will start with arpeggios and try to just increase and kind of get some squeaks, find where response is happening, just try to feel four notes. I'll do that sometimes. Sure, sure, sure. What about you guys? Well, David, what about what's, what's a tactic that you've used? I uh, switch off throughout the week between Stamp and Chickowitz, and I use the expanded Chickowitz. Um, and I actually honestly prefer it over the stamp just just because of the way it's written when you after you ascend you you come back down and so you go to the highest note that you can play and you end on the lowest note that you can possibly play and i i go into to double and triple pedals on that so it's oh wow yeah but for specifically developing range and again that whole thing it's really what i just talked about it's really about it's just connecting my usable range and uh, so, you know, I'm not really necessarily thinking about, you know, building, oh, I'm trying to get that new half step. It's it's really the sound and everything that everyone just went around and talked about before. I do inverted arpeggios, kind of like what Derek was talking about. I'm always trying to kill two birds with one stone. So, you know, as a jazz improviser, it gets pretty boring if you're running chord changes starting on the root every time so i start i've started playing triads and inversions uh, ascending and descending i've started doing the piccolo or the the gecker piccolo studies on my lead setup so playing scales and thirds you know that's something that you don't always hear people talking about derek's talked about this a little bit on the podcast but playing like scales and thirds and articulating every note and slurring Slurring up there, I feel like can a lot of times be easier than actually, you know, than actually articulating and tonguing. So that's something I've been doing. Uh, and then also uh, lip flexibility exercises. Gotcha. Your guys' stuff is very similar to mine. Before I elaborate, though, I want to see what Ben's secrets for high range expansion might be. I- I definitely, I definitely don't have any secrets, uh, but as far as the approaches that I do, they're actually pretty similar to what both Derek and David have said. And I said before that I, I don't use stamp as a, as a range exercise, uh, but that's really not necessarily true. <laughs> I don't, I don't use stamp as like with particularly thinking about developing my upper range. It is a range exercise in that you were developing all different parts of your range and connecting. And so I will include stamp in that, I guess, but the things that have helped me the most, because I've done all of these, I've done the scales, I've done the arpeggios. And I think that they, those are very helpful and they're, you know, I still use them. But the thing that helped me the most, because I'd never used it as a range builder until recently was flexibility because to me, what flexibility is all about is connectivity and proper use of air when you're connecting your, you know, your lows and your highs or whatever. But with the, what Derek was saying with the, the colon book, 
I use that and to me that is on my bigger horns that's where my range building specifically in the upper register has has increased significantly just from using that and honestly it's just it's keeping yourself to a methodical approach where you're not beating your face in but you're resting and with flexibility in particular because I find that I can get exhausted very quickly when I push it and you know I'm trying to just do the whole exercise without any thought to my strength my corners and so yeah I think with range exercises flexibility has been the most helpful for me on the bigger horns and not that it wouldn't be helpful on the smaller horns i just haven't used it as much on on say piccolo trumpet but flexibility exercises and rest and then when you start to lose form back it down so you back it down either a whole step or or more but back it down so that you're not you're not losing your form you're not losing your form you're not losing your posture you're not losing your your good techniques that go into that. And I think that went beyond the exercise, but, but yeah, that's what I do. Man, that is uh, the form thing. Would you guys agree form is probably one of the biggest things when it comes to increasing in any direction for anybody's range recently, ever since we did the Maggio that speaks highly about form and posture and making sure that you don't do unnecessary movements uh, that you don't need to. Yeah. I, I totally agree with you on that one. I don't know what you guys think about this, but uh, something that I have done, not to repeat what you have all said, because all of everything that you guys have said so far is very similar to what I've done in the past, but something to add on to that I like to do, especially when it came to lead trumpet playing or piccolo playing, is playing with literature playing with a recording up in that register and hearing up there. I think a big part of playing high notes or upper register is hearing it comfortably and knowing exactly where to put it because a lot of guessing goes up there when you're, when you, like you said, who said that? Uh, Derek, did Derek you say that? Or David, where there's like a guess. You, we don't spend a lot of time up there. So you got you to gotta spend some time up there and make it comfortable. That's... Playing when working on high range for me, it's just playing softly. You know, Bobby Shu always said, you know, man, it's easier to throw you throw a baseball really fast as opposed to a beach ball. You know, volume high range has about everything to do with air speed and speeding that up uh, with control. So if you're trying to throw something like a big mass of something, that's not gonna it's not going to zip. It's not going to speed up the air. You need to throw something small and compact. And he was a big proponent of that. I remember going to a master class of him and explained that. It was just a big light bulb for me. So that one right there playing softly up in the upper register and then being comfortable and having strength up there with the flexibility exercises that you guys have mentioned. And then when all has failed and everything has run out of options, I usually do the typical, you know, uh, put the goat blood in the cup put on some candles and then say a couple <laughs> prayers and chants in a dark room. And then usually I jump up a fifth the next day. That always works. I don't know if that works for y'all, but it works for me. <laughs> Whatever floats your boat, man. <laughs> it works. I'm telling you, you got to give it a go. <laughs> I have a question for you guys. So 
the way I was taught to think about range and the way I teach my students, or at least the analogy I use, I, I'm just I'm, I'm curious as to what you guys think of this. Um, and I think we've all had been in situations where analogies may not actually depict what's happening physically. It may not be an accurate depiction of that, but it's still like, mentally, it's just, it shifts the mind in a way that allows, allows you or allows someone you're working with to accomplish something. So something that I was always taught was to not think about range as up and down, but to think of it as horizontal and to think this is where this analogy may get weird, but I was always taught, you know, if I was struggling to play a note, pick a spot on the wall and imagine you know, the, the faster the air, the farther it's going to travel. And imagine you're shooting a laser beam out of your trumpet bell and you're bullseyeing this spot on the wall. So I've always, I kind of wonder what you guys think about that or this analogy of horizontal speed, you know, going farther. Yeah, I think that's a, Jake Jacoby, I'm sure a lot of people say this, but I remember reading about it and then people telling me about how Jake Jacoby thinks about it that way as well, where you're playing out, forward, and forward in front of you as opposed to up, you know? I've done that with a string before. I've literally attached a string to my pinky ring or my bell and put it across the room and and just look at it as I'm playing upper notes and just visualize. But yeah, I'm totally into that approach when it comes to playing any notes because it's that connection thing again, you know, what all of y'all said. But the string thing is how I've done it in the past. I think, I mean, any in analogy that, that works is fine. I mean, I I don't think well in analogies. I like to think of what the physical process is. So I might not use that, but I mean, there's a lot of those up is down, down is up. Like I said, the horizontal thing, uh, as you ascend, notes are getting closer. I've heard that before, as, or getting farther away, like you said. So I, I think any of those that work, I, I don't, I don't use them. I don't think of them, but if it works, if it, you know, it's, it's finding something that, that is quick and easy sometimes, because if you're teaching someone, you don't have an hour. And this is something I struggle with every time. When people ask me about range, it's like, how much time do you have? Can we practice today for 10 hours together and f try to figure this out? Because one hour is not enough time to like go through what is actually happening within your body. And if you haven't dealt with that ever, like for the people who don't ever think about tongue arch, maybe they don't even know where their tongue is. They can't feel it inside their mouth while they play, or they don't understand the breathing process, all this stuff, then an hour is just not enough and especially for younger students, if you can just throw out one of these analogies, that works. More power to you. If, it, if you know, it goes back to that. If it ain't broken, don't fix it. I always struggled with the up is down, down is up thing from from Stamp when I was working on that, just because I I was never taught to think of it as up and down to begin with, and just you know horizontally. So it was always weird for me. But yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know, Ben. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, what Derek said is excellent. And I think that is like as far as like having the mentality or the analogy or coining a phrase or whatever, these are great tools to give students that might not know what physically is actually going on. And it's easier for them to conceptualize things that way 
with these phrases rather than trying to figure out physically what's going on. Because you know what they say, you know, you try to focus on one thing physically and 10 other things go wrong. So it's easier to implement those, I think, with younger students. But I also agree with what Derek was saying in that, like, personally, you know, up is down and down is up only works until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't work, you're left with, well, what in the world am I doing? So I do like to get to the physical approach, figuring out what exactly is going on. And I think the whole, like the underlying principle of up is down and down is up is essentially eliminating movement, trying to play as, you know, evenly again, like we were talking about earlier, trying to compare it back to your money range, trying to minimize your movement back to that. But, you know, there's always going to be little intricacies of, of things that you do throughout the different registers. And that's where I think as experienced players, you know, you, you can really dig into that and figure out what's going on physically with yourself. So using a tool such as a mirror is really helpful. Using a tool such as recording devices are very helpful. Anything that can give you feedback of things that you don't necessarily see or hear mm. when you're behind the horn playing. You know, David, I'm just going to add something because Ben, you reminded me of a younger version of myself thinking back when I was first starting to learn how to develop my range. Okay. Picture little old Chris back in high school. Okay. And little old Chris back then wanted to uh, play some high notes to impress some people and uh, maybe a specific person. Okay. So going back, <laughs> I think there's a few ingredients that are necessary for developing range, especially with younger players. And the first is having exercises that develop tongue position and airspeed. I think that's a big one. So anything breathing for sure. Visualization is really important. That's conceptual. Yeah, that always helps. But like you guys said, sometimes that engine runs into a dead end sometimes. But having the right exercises, you all know what the exercises are because you all said them so already. Exercises, breathing, make sure they'll be able to move that air and have support. And I think the third thing that at least looking back is having the want to have high range. I think there needs to be a drive with students who are developing high range to just go for it. Cause sometimes, especially with younger players playing softly just might not cut it, you know, at the time, if you're going to swing for a 300 yard, 350 yard drive, you just have to let it rip sometimes and hope it doesn't go left or right. You know, I'm talking about golf here. Sometimes you just got to let it go. And then once you feel it, then you can back off. You can just say like, you got that weight off your shoulders and you just be like, yes, I did it once. Okay. Now let's tailor it back a little bit. Now I can hit that D above C in the middle of the staff, you know, <laughs> um, at least that's what it was for me. <laughs> but you, you dig what I'm saying? I, I, I think that's a, big ingredient especially for younger students is them touching it at least and then not fearing the big pedestal note that's haunting or in the back of the forefront of their mind whatever it is concepts are great of course you're talking to i'm referring to my own experience which was doing it and and sometimes you know trial and error i know we talked about that in past episodes where sometimes you just got to get you gotta beat yourself up sometimes. I'm not saying it's the most correct. There's proper ways of beating yourself up without ruining your face. 
but maybe that's the process with some people, you know? I like that. That reminds me of something Bill Fund would tell me in my lessons with him is sometimes you have to learn how to do it first before you can then go back and perfect it. You know, sometimes we're so concerned with doing it perfectly that, you know, doing, doing it at that level, you know, maybe that's a little too much to expect. Do it first, figure out how you did it, then go back and polish it. Yeah, that's like making my first cake, man. That thing was terrible the first time I made a cake. Oh, my God. It was doughy for sure. I know Derek, one time he made these chicken burgers that were, they were good. They were really good, but I mean, but they were just too juicy the first time. That was, that was the problem. We had, he had to dial back the juicy. Come on. Those are the words of Daryl Watson. That's so funny. I'm I'm going to. Ben, I'm glad that you reacted that way because yeah, my brother, (laughs) Chris is just, he's just being funny, but my brother did say that. And we also were like, what does that mean? Like they're too perfectly cooked? Is that your problem? <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, Chris, I think you're absolutely right. And that this is where it's hard as a teacher for me because I don't like to tell people, yeah, I mean, you just have to like try to do it. I know you can't play a high deep, but just try, like aim for the fences and hit the ball, right? Go for the ball because I don't want anyone to hurt themselves. You know, and this is an easy way to hurt yourself. And in fact, this is how probably the majority of people that get the young players that get hurt are them trying to play too high, too much. You know, this is so common. And I I don't want my students to do that. But it's it's what you have to do. And, you know, I, I always liken high notes to coordination. This is a it's a coordination game. And for those notes that you can't play. It's you're trying to thread a needle in a pitch black room. You can't, you don't know where the needle is, right? And so I guess a better analogy is you're looking for a needle in a haystack, haystack, but it's a dark room. You have no idea. You know the ballpark because you know where the hay is, but you don't know where the, you can't see anything. So you have to just get in there and like try to find it. And the more times you find it, the more times you hit that note, the better an idea you have of getting back to it, right? It's like an old dungeon crawler game or something, right? Like the more you do it, the cl- the closer you're going to get to being able to just walk in that room, turn the lights on and grab the dang thing, right? So that's definitely part of it is that you just have to swing for the fences. And, and that's why I like thinking of this as coordination because then once you do that, or once you identify what you need to do to get there, then you can start making your adjustments. That's when you troubleshoot. That's when you remove variables. That's when I think you start playing soft. I don't think you should start playing soft. I think you should start playing loud and just swinging for it. And then once you hit it a few times, you're like, okay, I kind of remember how that feels. Then you start backing off the air. You remove variables, right? Now you're not worried about air volume. You're just worried about air speed. Uh, you don't tongue. Maybe now you're, maybe you don't play an arpeggio and you don't have that fourth jump, right? Between D and G. And now you play a chromatic scale. So you just have half steps. That's all you got to worry about. Or maybe you just do flexibility. Now you don't have to worry about your fingers. And it's, you're just removing those 
things and you're getting the coordination built up to where you can consistently have that note. That's now a usable note. And then you can add variables. Once you can go in and grab it, you can add those variables back like playing loud, tonguing, large leaps, uh, hitting it, just, just hitting it instead of approaching it or connecting. Now connect, hitting that note and then connecting back down to low notes. It's just all coordination. I think this range of exploration that you guys are talking about, it's so important for younger students to learn this concept that you guys are discussing, which is you do have to take that leap. You do have to take, make mistakes. You're, everyone is going to make those mistakes. The, the, where you get hurt is when you start making those mistakes over and over and over again without trying to change. Yeah. It'd be like Chris making that first cake and then being like, I don't really care. I'm just going to make this cake this way every single time from now yeah. on. Well, this is how I make this cake. <laughs> it sucks, but this is how oh, I make it. You like it or you don't. <laughs> yeah, that's a great that's a great point, Ben. Oh, go ahead, Ben. Go ahead, Chris. I was just going to say exploration keyword right there. I think it's the journey. Yes. Exactly. Have you guys watched Ready Player 1? Uh, yes. I read Ready Player One. <laughs> it's it's also the greatest one of the greatest books ever made. And they're coming Great out with movie, the second though. one. Yeah, they're coming yep. out with this. Yeah. So I don't want to give it away, but there's there's a part in the movie. It could be towards the end, but the whole concept of I think there's a huge concept at the end of the movie that's a big one, which is exploration. And if you guys have seen it or have read it, you guys know what I'm talking about. There's this constant, uh, that's the fun part, the kid part, if I, I like to call it, the curiosity of exploring something. And I just wanted to piggy or add on to this idea, range is like this, but anything that you do trumpet wise or music wise or anything, there needs to be this exploration of you just going and trying things out. And Derek, you, you did a great job. Start removing limitations you know, or put limitations on yourself, should I say, when you're trying to perfect something. But it starts with that exploration, that idea of you just getting in there and and being curious of what you're capable of, where you're at, and then see if you can touch it, you know? That's, that's the fun part, you know? Music's the same way when you come to improvising or whatever. I don't want to branch away too much from the range thing, but... Uh, this concept of exploration is is a big one, and Ben, you, you, that was the perfect word for it. This is, I mean, it goes to everything, everything in your life. You know, you have to accept where you're at, while knowing that you want to get better, and it takes time. It takes time to do it right, and that's the journey that you're going to be on. Some people are going to have better coordination. We don't start. We're not starting in the same place. So some people are going to pick up the horn and they're just going to have coordination. They're just already going to have the coordination to play a double C. But some of us aren't and most of us aren't. And accepting that and knowing that, okay, well, I'm going to work on expanding my range in all directions with a beautiful sound, blah, blah, blah. And we're, this is the journey I'm on and this is the process. And then you just have to, you have to have those that mindset and the mindset of troubleshooting and realizing what's happening 
I can't do this. Why? Ask yourself why. Why can't I play this note? And then, again, you just analyze what you're doing, remove variables, and trust the process. Trust that it's going to work if you are if you were following the steps. And the steps are going to be different for all of us because we all struggle with different things. And so this is where you just have to be asking yourself, why is this not happening? And then just get better slowly and slowly every day. Yeah. And to think we have so many resources. Think about this. If, if you wanted to bake a cake, just seek out the best bakers around you and you go and learn from them and you go and eat their cake. And then once you've learned what they have to share, what they're cooking, you go seek out other bakers and see what they're cooking. I mean, that's what this is. We're just, you know, expanding our horizons and we're learning what other people know. And, you know, the wonderful thing is people have already gone to those far out places that we haven't been and we can learn from them and grow. And then in those baker shops, you'll probably see a painting of a squirrel or something. (laughs) And then on top of that squirrel, you might see a squirrel on a cake. You'll see a squirrel with a painting on it of a squirrel. Yes. I was trying to branch out into Chris's world, but I really couldn't. Like, <laughs> I can't do it as well. Chris's world is too hard to get to. Don't go here, guys. Stay away. <laughs> I feel like we say this every episode. This is a topic we can talk about forever, and it is. But to close this out, to close out this, this discussion of range, I'm going to ask you guys for a hot tip. So what is your hot tip for learning range? For a student, let's say high school age who wants to be able to comfortably comfortably play a high C. So the first thing that comes to mind for me actually was when I was in high school and my range was seriously compromised initially by embouchure and mouthpiece placement. We don't need to get into that discussion. That's definitely one for another time. But through that process of, of uh, changing my setup when I was in a lesson with my teachers at a summer camp, I was really struggling in the upper register and you know, all things were going wrong for me. But the one thing that he did that helped me the most was reaching over and pushing the trumpet off my face on the bell. Like he put his finger on the bell and just pushed it off my face as I was playing. And through that, like obviously I wanted to follow the horn, but you know, I, I learned to, avoid all that pressure that I was putting on my face. And I think a lot of times that's, you know, it's not the whole thing. It's not the whole issue everyone deals with, but it's part, part of it that a lot of high school players do deal with. And that alone, just trying to eliminate all that pressure that you put on your face to get those upper notes, it can really help to open up everything and allow you to connect everything a lot more freely. David, you got one? Uh, yes, pursue private lessons and try to watch, listen, but but try to watch videos on YouTube of the masters doing this. There's not a huge private lesson culture in Colorado, and you know a lot of the students that I've that I'm 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 teaching they they have no real concept of how the horn is supposed to work when they when they come and see me and from what I gather, the students are in the minority 
versus like where I came from, almost everyone in the section was getting private lessons. So, you know, pursue pursue private lessons. If if it's something you really want to do, you really want to get better at, you know, that's that, that I think that can be incredibly beneficial. Yeah, that's a good one. For me, there's so many things. There's so many things. So many tips, hot tips of the day. Hot tip by Chris. I would say have something to work towards. We tend to work better when we have a goal in front of us, not a deadline necessarily, but maybe a target to shoot towards. I think even having a piece or striving for, let's just say you're a a third chair trumpet player in jazz band or concert band or whatever, and you want to play the first parts, and those notes typically are higher, aim for that. Start there. And and then work your way, continue to work your way up and do it with your friends. I would say find a band buddy, as I always say. Uh, Find a band buddy to do it with and work towards it. I think that's, it'll be more fun that way. Uh, If that, that would be my tip because thinking back in high school, I had a band buddy that I would play with and we got better together because we just played all the time and we worked towards that goal. I think my hot tip for a high school-aged student wanting to consistently play a high C is, now I guess it's different for everybody as to why you can't play a high C, but my advice for the average player is going to be start practicing an hour a day. That's it. Practice whatever you need to practice. If it's for a school, school band, or if it's during the summer, practice the eight, any, anything you have. I, I didn't have private lessons until I got to college, so I would just play stuff, random stuff I had. So I don't think it matters what you play, just any music you have. But practice, play on the horn an hour a day. And I think for, for the majority of students, if you do that for a while, certainly a year, but probably six months, you can probably, probably, probably play a high C comfortably at least pretty close to it so can i change my answer to derek's (laughs) no i I just i think that that's such a good point consistency is everything and back to your original question that was what you were asking and consistently play a high c well practice every day practice every day and it's going to take a while for that the day you play your first high c from that day to the day you can consistently play a high c it's probably going to be a while. <laughs> and that goes for every note above that as well. So, um, you know, don't get ahead of yourself. Just accept it. it it's not a linear progression. Just because you played a high C today does not mean you can play a high C tomorrow. In fact, depending on how you played that high C, it might mean you can't play a high C tomorrow. <laughs> so um, just accept it and, uh, and trust, trust the process. Just take your time. There's no rush. Not really. We feel like there is, but not really. Not really. Great. Well, that's a good discussion. I think it'll be really interesting to talk to you guys about this again in the future because especially with this topic, it seems to change, especially for me, I feel like this changes year to year, month to month even, my thoughts on range. So this will be great. Um, Before we get off, though, I have a question for you. 
It's not range related, so trumpet players can skip, but they're not going to want to. So we each just uh, passed Thanksgiving. So my question, favorite food that you ate this week? Oh, boy. <laughs> I know this is a hard one. I'm gonna, I'll start and give you some time to think. But my favorite was simple, a staple of Thanksgiving, and that is pumpkin pie. Because I have not had it. I th- I think I only have pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving. I never eat it any other time of the year. And it was very good. And I, w- I remember thinking, huh, this is better than I remember it being. So that, that's mine. Mm. Pumpkin pie is a good one. I'd say 100%, hands down, desert island food. <laughs> mashed potatoes oh my gosh with the the skin on them oh yeah i like that it was it was um i was i probably had died part of me just like passed out a little bit while the food was in my mouth i woke up came to kept chewing ate some more and then just laid on the couch and didn't touch anything else (laughs) yeah oh it's so good Ah, I'm so tempted to take the cop-out answer and just say everything, but... (laughs) Well, if you do, you have to tell us what everything was. (laughs) Oh, this this podcast isn't long enough. (laughs) (laughs) We can do a a whole episode. So, my family did it a little different this year. We all wanted to make our best thing. So, all the dishes were actually really good. I think, though, my favorite was probably the turkey. My my brother did this version of uh, I don't remember the name of the it's a kitchen show on YouTube, Bon Appetit Test Kitchen. That's what it is. Check them out. But anyways, he made a version of the turkey from that show, and it was just phenomenal. It was like the most tender white meat on a turkey I've nice. ever had. It's so. Did good. you see that guy uh, on was it on Sports Center where he? boiled the deep fried the turkey and it was burnt hard burnt i did see that turkey yeah oh, poor geez. guy it's like, yeah, and oh, his family oh, was man. laughing at it <laughs> yeah oh that oh, was man. i feel so bad about that i was like i hope that doesn't happen to me i hope that doesn't happen to me it was going through my mind when i saw that early in the morning nice i i didn't eat thanksgiving because i was too busy practicing no i'm just I'm just kidding. No, for me, it was homemade cornbread stuffing. That sounds... Okay, so what was in it? I don't know. Describe cornbread. it to me. Cornbread and S- stuffing. Stuffing. Duh. Duh. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't help make it. I, I assume celery and the onions and stuff. My, my wife made it, but it's the first time I've ever had it where it wasn't like the stuffing that comes out of the box. Oh, yeah. And it was amazing. It was so good. Changed my, changed my life. I, I called my mom up and complained as to why this was the first time I was having this. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like a smart strategy, David. Well, you know. Knowing your mom, she probably had something to say about that. <laughs> my mom has a lot of stuff to say. Every time I talk to her, she has a lot to say to me. So <laughs> She's the best. She's, she's hilarious. Man, Derek, I can never forget that ham you made many moons ago on Thanksgiving. And it was honey glazed mm-hmm. and it was basted. Probably, you know, well, oh, it was definitely it was a lot. probably the 
I did that a lot. Juiciest ham I've ever eaten in my life. Oh my! That gosh. was a good ham. That had bourbon. It was a honey maple syrup and bourbon glaze. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, that was so Goodness good. Gracious. I gotta say so, that was the runner up for Thanksgiving because we we did that type of ham, but the runner the runner up wasn't the ham itself. It was it was the mashed potatoes, but with a gravy mm. made with made with sauce from the ham, and it was so good. No. Well, great, guys. That was that's fun. It's nice to hear about the food. I am hungry. That is a problem because I'm. It's late here, but. Well, if you want to check us out, you can check out our website at ourtrumpetlife.com. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next time. <laughs>